Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. What's going on, guys? Happy Tuesday. So today we're going to look at first uh, Hashgraph and its implications for alt season. Uh, two, we're going to look at tokenization of stuff, uh, real estate, NBA contracts, you name it. And number three, we're going to talk about um, some delistings in the privacy coin space, uh, the travel rule and what it all means. Um, first, quickly, a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to make sure everyone under or knew that um, this uh, 3 at 3 is available not only as this video uh, live out on Twitter, um, but also as a podcast, right? So you can go to iTunes or Spotify or Google or basically wherever you listen to spot uh, podcasts, search Crypto Daily 3 at 3 or search my name uh, and you'll be able to find it. You can also subscribe via Substack. I send it out every day, nlw.substack.com. Um, it's separate from the Long Read Sunday list, uh, which is uh, elsewhere, but that's where you can find this if you want to just subscribe and so you can listen to it on your commute or whatever. That's kind of the idea behind this is to have something that's commutable. Uh, but with that, let's actually get into uh, Hashgraph, right? And, and alt season. So um, a little tongue in cheek thing. I was thinking about it earlier. Uh, whenever a new project touts its TPS, all I can think of is uh, office space and TPS reports. But anyway, so Hashgraph, um, it's uh, out now. Uh, it is theoretically a faster blockchain alternative, right? So um, for those of you who haven't been paying uh, attention or haven't been following along with um, Hashgraph, its whole thing is based on a, a new technology called uh, directed acyclic graphs. Um, it is a basically it's a, it is an alternative to the actual architecture of blockchain. It theoretically offers different benefits in terms of uh, speed and throughput or whatever. And I think like more relevantly in terms of this conversation, um, this has gotten the market's excited, right? So uh, you're seeing uh, like they've raised a hundred million dollars on a like a six billion dollar valuation um, in the last few weeks or a few months or whatever it is. And it just uh, started publicly being traded today. Um, now, as Hasu points out, it's publicly trading a little bit lower uh, and not very high volume. So, you know, maybe it's not a huge thing. Um, so in terms of Hashgraph specifically, uh, you know, uh, there's there's a couple questions. Like one is what, how interesting is it really um, as a technology, as an alternative in and of itself? Uh, there's a lot of different approaches to this uh, or different thinking on this. So um, I would recommend that you go check out uh, Eric Wall's tweets about this. He also wrote a whole post on Medium about it. Long story short, for him, there's not much there to be interested in. And a lot of the claims um, don't really make sense. And uh, it kind of is going through the same playbook of, the same marketing playbook that we saw during the ICO boom in terms of, you know, throwing a, a bunch of partnerships or a bunch of kind of big involved corporations uh, have a bunch of new acronyms that sound really interesting. So maybe a little bit of complexity theater there um, and ultimately trade off uh, decentralization and the number of validators for um, speed and throughput. That's kind of his take. Um, you have over here, uh, Omar Bam, Crypto News, who has similar uh, similar kind of um, feelings about about what uh, what the actual value proposition is as 
uh, as, as it's realized. So he says centralized like Libra, extremely pre-mined, will be available for trading on Bittrex, disappointing. Um, now there are uh, a number of folks who are obviously really excited about this as well. I've talked a lot about uh, the Hidden Forces podcast and Dimitri over there who runs it. Um, and he's really excited about this. So he had the uh, the creators of Hashgraph on. And so if you wanna go listen uh, f direct from the source, uh, I recommend that. Um, but I think that the the interesting thing for me that I, that I wanna focus on for the sake of the three at three today is not so much Hashgraph itself and more about just the, the markets that surround projects like Hashgraph and particular this question of alt season, right? So um, if you look at uh, the markets today, you're seeing basically all the alts up against uh, BTC. So this is an image of, you can see all the green. For those of you who are listening, it's kind of one of those, uh, the the graph images of all the different um, assets weighted by uh, their percentage of the market and how much they're up either red or green based on uh, Bitcoin. Uh, and it's showing that everything, Ethereum's up, uh, XRP is way up today, um, especially relative to Bitcoin, which is up just a little bit. And so this has obviously got everyone screaming about alt season. Uh, so you have uh, Crypto Bitlord over here saying, if you won't buy now, trust me, you will FOMO later, basically implicating that you you got to do it. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's worth then taking a minute to talk about this idea of alt season. So um, on the one hand, there's the question of, is there anything besides Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever that can be innovative? Um, and so Ariana Simpson a few weeks ago, I guess almost a month ago now, got into this a little bit in this thread where she basically makes the point that as excited about Bitcoin as she is and as clear as it has outperformed almost everything else this year, the reality is, is that there's going to be new innovation, there's going to be interesting things uh, and completely blinding yourself to everything is, is kind of crazy. Now, what Ariana is not talking about is the idea of an alt season as a specific financial phenomenon that people are waiting for, right? So alt season was the byproduct uh, of basically people making huge gains in Bitcoin and then wanting to, to um, push that money into other assets that they saw able to make even higher gains, right? And we ran through a whole bunch of different narratives through that. Uh, this was a large part of what the ICO boom was, is basically people being able to shift all that money that they made into Bitcoin exploding into other tokens, other assets, and looking for things Things that were going to have comparable returns if they had been holding for Bitcoin for a long time, right? And so the, the issue that I take with the idea of alt season is you have a huge number of people who came into the markets during that ICO boom who are ridiculously underwater. We're talking like 90, 95% underwater who are waiting for this, um, what people have tried to convince them is an inevitable pop sitting around doing their technical analysis and hoping that these assets often, which have uh, no teams behind them and basically nothing happening with them are somehow magically going to move again. Um, and I just think it's it's uh, it's the one of the worst cases of forgetting the whole past performance is no indicator of future results, uh, which is at the core of finance, right? Um, and so I think that it's really important as uh, market participants that we separate um, one, the, the kind of uh, the the just are the the whatever's happening in the market and and whatever we can understand um 
with the the fundamentals underneath, right? You can be excited about technological developments, but the reality is is that because liquidity happens so early, because of the fact of tokenization, uh, all these assets are just freely available to to buy, um, and uh, and we're trying to find patterns where I'm not necessarily sure they exist. Now, of course, I could be wrong. I'm not a trader. I've never claimed to be a trader. Um, I could be an idiot, and I could be foregoing a huge amount of revenue by not paying attention. Um, there is also the the possibility that uh, that it has nothing to do with fundamentals and even debt assets can pump like crazy um, because that's the nature of the markets we're in. But that leaves me to this other conclusion. Uh, and, and this really, I think, sums up what I feel about crypto markets when it comes to markets. Um, so this article, is uh, it's actually about Hollywood. It says, with one line, William Goldman taught Hollywood everything it needed to know. William Goldman was a, a screenwriter um, famous for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, and my personal favorite, Princess Bride. And he he uttered this line. It was not in one of his movies, but it was famous around Hollywood. He said, nobody knows anything. And basically his point was that uh, anytime someone tells you that something will or won't be a hit or that they know exactly how to market it or that they know exactly where it'll fit or that your idea isn't good because it doesn't fit into the paradigm, nobody knows anything. Um, this is something that's been echoed uh, in larger financial markets by people like Ben Hunt, who kind of have argued in some ways that we're in almost a post-fundamental world where the only thing that matters is narrative and how we interpret it. Uh, again, nobody knows anything. And so when it comes to this idea of will there or won't there be another alt season, uh, I think the, the best uh, framing that I've seen today uh, comes from Luke Martin. He said, alt window, not alt season, a window of time that alts can outperform Bitcoin, whether that's three days, a week or a month. While Bitcoin is flat or weak, the alt BTC pair has a better chance of doing well. This feels very rational to me. Uh, it recognizes that, of course, there are going to be times when the markets pump things outside of Bitcoin because they're just not happy with what they're getting out of Bitcoin. Um, but I think more broadly, uh, if you had to summarize my feeling about whether it's a good idea to kind of sit and wait um, and, uh, and, and hope that a new um, alt season appears, uh, it, would, it would be this, this clip from, uh, from that movie, from Princess Bride. Uh, let's listen in. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye! <laughs> All right, uh, so let's get out of here. Uh, let's move on to number two, um, tokenized NBA contracts. So uh, this is actually kind of about the tokenization of stuff, um, but it starts with a the specific piece of news or, or story that I saw, I think it was last week. Uh, so Eric Voorhees from Scapeshift here says, this is cool. Obviously it's a security under SEC rules, but I think this will be a common thing in the future. Brooklyn Nets guard Spencer Dwindy, uh, Din, Dinwiddie sorry, is planning to release a digital contract for others to invest in his contract, a digital token for others to invest in his contract. Um, so basically, uh, you have an NBA player who's going to tokenize their contract. And the idea is... Um, basically, investors get to uh, investors who buy into his contract receive principal and interest. Um, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, uh, clearly, someone who's thinking differently about how they manage their money. Um, I think it's also uh, on trend with a lot of kind of these interesting cultural figures, particularly athletes, um, becoming the the newest set of ambassadors.
ambassadors for Bitcoin and for crypto more broadly. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And it got me thinking just kind of what's the state of security tokens in general? Well, uh, Derek Edward Schloss wrote this great uh, thread today on exactly that, um, basically where, where uh, tokenized securities or security tokens are. Um, and he points out a ton of recent news. So uh, Banco Santander issued a $20 million bond directly to Ethereum last month. Um, he talked about uh, a piece of news. Uh, he talked about the NBA news. And then he also talked about this um, story, which I saw uh, yesterday as well, which was that Harbor was tokenizing um, $100 million worth of real estate funds. Uh, and so the details of this uh, announced Monday, the startup has created tokens on the Ethereum blockchain representing the shares of four real estate funds worth 100 million. The move is intended to make these private securities easier to trade for the 1100 investors that hold them, along with 17 broker dealers and placement agents that work with the funds. The quote is, for years we've been looking for ways to create the best investment experience we can and for us that means providing liquidity. So this gets back to the idea of uh, uh, tokenized securities as a way to um, make interesting uh, opportunities when it comes to just how products are offered and how people can make money and how people can buy in. Um, and I think that the really relevant detail for me with this is this line here. Harbor has pivoted from helping companies issue security tokens to helping, to helping them tokenize existing securities. Um, so this came from, uh, this was an evolution, right? So uh, if you go down in the story, initially the company tried to build tokens backed by real-world assets. It reckoned if investors were interested in initial coin offerings issued by projects with only a promise, they would be excited for backed tokens. However, the overlap, and this is a quote from the Harbor folks, the overlap between investors demanding tokens and investors interested in security tokens was zero. People were buying tokens, but they weren't buying to invest, they were buying to speculate. So basically, they've now shifted to become a platform to allow existing real-world assets to tokenize themselves, to to do interesting things with. Um, this is kind of reflective in, uh, so John Whelan uh, or Whelan, uh, forgive me, John, for uh, mispronouncing your name one way or another. He's the head of digital investment banking for Santander, uh, who issued that that $20 million bond on Ethereum. Um, he wrote a great thread about the state of to, uh, security tokens as well. And, uh, and he kind of comes back to the same idea of tokenized securities over security tokens, right? So he says, tokenized securities will bring a wave of financial innovation. E.g., you could create a custom security consisting of coupon 5 from bond A, coupon 19 from bond B, coupon 27 from bond C, attach it derivative and offer it to investors that a unique payout profile. And so this is, I think, what uh, the, the professional investors who are talking about tokenized securities get interested in is this idea of being able to create new types of products from existing securities, right? that it actually just creates a, a, a radically different um, composability almost of securities where you could take uh, parts of, of you know, a revenue line from one part of one company and tokenize that rather than having people just have to buy the stock that represents the company as a whole. Um, and in, uh, for a lot of those folks, this starts to become really obvious and interesting. But I think it's important in the context of that conversation we were just having about alt season and about uh, just tokens in general, that even the companies who are most supposed to be at the forefront of the security token revolution, right? And this idea of STOs and security token offerings are still finding themselves come back to not creating new assets kind of out of thin air, but instead focusing on helping companies uh, that already have existing real world assets that have cash flows that are interesting um, and putting them uh, and tokenizing them, right? And allowing them to do interesting new types of uh, security.
security products with them. So I think it's a, an interesting reflection just of where we are in terms of uh, the evolution of uh, security tokens and tokenized securities. And uh, we'll continue to watch. Um, but with that, let's move on to number three. Um, so this is uh, this will be our our heavy topic for the day. It's a little bit calmer than usual. I'm not talking about the end of the financial order or Bitcoin's politicization as as we were yesterday. Um, but there was an interesting story that caught my eye. So uh, yesterday reports came in that OKX in Korea. Um, was going to delist all of their privacy coins. So that's Monero, Zcash, Dash, uh, and they, they're claiming that it violates the, the FATF travel rule. So um, basically the travel rule uh, is uh, a, um, it's a guideline uh, from the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global body to fight money laundering, uh, that suggests or makes recommendations about what information exchanges need to collect uh, from customers during their transactions. Um, and in uh, July or no, June, excuse me, they issued guidelines, um, which basically took the existing paradigm of U.S. guidelines uh, for um, for. Uh, information collection from exchanges and suggested that the rest of the world adopt them. Uh, now, um, if you look at, uh, I'm going to bring up uh, Niraj's profile here. Um, actually, I'm going to ignore that for now. But basically, Niraj from Coin Center has made the point numerous times, and Coin Center has made the point numerous times that really the the travel rule um, guidance that came out in June was just a, uh, it was pretty much in keeping with what already existed for the U.S. It was just the U.S. Ex effectively trying to export that idea everywhere. Um, they were, the point that they were trying to make is that counter to a lot of the claims in the market at the time and the news and the media at the time, um, it was not the end of, uh, of crypto as we knew it. Um, at the same time, uh, this is part of kind of a larger trend. This OKX Korea news does seem to be part of a larger trend of delisting when it comes to privacy coins. So uh, a couple months ago, or I guess this was just in August, everything feels like a couple months ago in this market, um, Coinbase UK delisted uh, Zcash because of, it seems, uh, concerns ultimately around banking. Uh, Coinbase UK was having trouble with its banking partners uh, and it had to uh, delist privacy coins for some reason. Um, so this is, a, a, I think, the, the interesting and relevant thing here has to do with the state of the global battle for privacy, right? So uh, Ian Myers, who is uh, works with the Zcash Foundation, um, wrote a thread about why this is problematic, uh, even though it's just kind of one, you know, Korean exchange in general. Um, and he makes the point that, uh, that by the way, don't be too hard on this exchange. Uh, it's not really about them. It's about what the global state of regulation is. Um, and he, he basically uh, gets into the nitty gritty of how exchanges capture information what information they capture and what the challenge is. But I think that this uh, this particular tweet is the, um, the pull quote that I think is really relevant. If this trend continues, you will end up in a world where to comply with regulations, all your data must be exposed. This is like customs saying they need to be able to strip search people to stop drug smugglers, and so the airlines ban you from wearing clothes on all flights. So obviously this is a, a, a highly visual metaphor, but I don't think it's, it's uh, that untrue, right? Like we're in a, a paradigm shift right now where we're figuring out 
what exactly the state of our financial privacy is going to be. Um, and I think that the it is being encroached upon by the digitization of technologies. Um, and in fact, one of the really interesting uh, questions is where in the crypto, basically can crypto coexist with the regulatory environment um, as it relates to privacy? Can crypto provide a force for greater privacy uh, in financial transactions uh, within the regulatory paradigm and framework. Um, and I think that's an open question. Certainly companies like Zcash have been uh, vocal about their, their intention to try to have those things uh, be compatible. But when you have um, you know, this sort of action uh, in delisting, it makes one nervous about whether that's actually the case. Um, this is all part and parcel, I think, of the larger question of uh, just the state of privacy and financial transactions in general. Um, so I would say, you know, yesterday we talked about Bitcoin is political, cryptocurrencies are political, um, privacy is most certainly political. Uh, privacy, I think, in some ways is the battleground uh, for all of us right now, privacy versus surveillance. Um, and it's a question of uh, security on the one hand or the purported uh, responsibility of governments for the security of their citizens with what rights they take away, what privacy they take away to get it. Um, and uh, those are complicated lines, but they're being drawn and redrawn right now. So um, I think it's worth paying attention to. Uh, certainly for me is uh, as important as anything else we talk about here. So guys, uh, thanks for hanging out. Again, if you're listening, thanks for checking us out on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. And I will be back tomorrow. Peace, guys.